This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. From our Providence, Rhode Island studios, I sit down with Providence Journal political reporter, Patrick Anderson. Patrick Anderson is the Statehouse reporter for Rhode Island's sole daily statewide newspaper, the Providence Journal. Patrick recently co-moderated gubernatorial and United States Senate debates and is one of the most well-read political writers in the Rhode Island market. We had a jolly old time talking Rhode Island politics and media in the days leading up to the general election. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Bartholomew Town Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume content. You may also find each of our in-depth interviews with Rhode Island politicians, media members, artists, and more at BartholomewTown.com or RIPodcast.com. It's always great to hear from you, the listeners out there. You can email me, bill at BartholomewTown.com. And been getting some great feedback about our daily podcast marathon last week. Five pods in five days. And we'll have plenty of content coming your way all the way through the general election and beyond. All right, let's get right to it. From the Projo, the one and only Patrick Anderson. We are here at The Loft with Providence Journal political reporter, Patrick Anderson. Thanks so much for your time right here in the heart of the season. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, we saw some new polling numbers come out. Providence Journal, Rhode Island Public Radio, ABC6, uh, conducted by UNH, um, that showed Governor Raimondo with an expanded lead over her, each of her opponents, well, all of her opponents, I should say, um, 14 points. Obviously, the the survey, you can break it down. Joe Trillo and Alan Fung have each refuted it in various ways. Where do you stand on that poll? Does that seem like an accurate kind of gauge of where we're at? Well, without being a polling expert, um, I, I think it's it's in the range of where other polls have been. It's more favorable to Democrats uh, than the last poll uh, by for PRI and that's bringing a lot of, of criticism from Republicans and questions from Republicans. Um, but uh, I, I don't think there's anything that jumps out in the in the methodology. Um, I think the only question that there, legitimate question that there has been is whether it oversampled independents that lean Democratic. Uh, I mean, as, as uh, most people know, they're the um, largest chunk of voters are unaffiliated. Um, but uh, this uh, poll broke those down and asked uh, independents where they leaned, whether they were more Democratic or more Republican. Um, and some of the and uh, both the particularly the fun camp uh, has questioned whether they got too many of those unaffiliated voters who were leaning uh, Democratic. But that, uh, you know, the I guess the counter to that would be that might be what you'd expect in a state where all almost all of or all of the statewide office holders are Democrats, the entire congressional delegation or de- congressional de- delegation are Democrats and um, and a overwhelming uh, majority in the General Assembly, you know, that this is a blue state and that might actually be reflective of the electorate. Right. Same poll also revealed uh, Senator Whitehouse with 
even I'm, I, I would assume this poll conducted prior to his sort of national stardom, if you will, with the Kavanaugh hearings. But uh, it did show him with a slightly increased lead as well, um, or at least in the driver's seat. So as far as the two, the top of the ticket, it looks like uh, things are heading favorably for the Dems at this point. Yeah, if if these numbers uh, are are really reflective of of where the voters are, it's very bad news for both um, Alan Fung uh, and Bob Flanders. Um, it would indicate that they really need to change the dynamic uh, of both of their respective races and and uh, do something different. Um, I know that the you know, the Flanders camp is really pinning a lot of hopes on the Kavanaugh hearings and attacking uh, Senator Whitehouse um, for for bringing up uh, Kavanaugh's yearbook and a lot of the details in that. But it's unclear whether that's that's going to stick. Um, I mean, yeah, this poll was in the field during the Kavanaugh period, you know, during that that kind of week where he was in the news every day and the hearings were being planned and then and then taking place. Um, so it's it's unclear whether uh, that's going to play well for Flanders. Um, and for Fung, he's got the challenge now um, of not just the polling numbers, but um, and Joe Trillo potentially siphoning off some Republican votes. But he's got to reclaim some of the oxygen in the race that Trillo's uh, taking away. Um, I mean, he Trillo is, is making it very difficult for Fung to set any kind of narrative or put the race on his terms um, with uh, the all of the flamboyant stories that he's producing that Trillo is producing uh, on a daily <laughs> basis. Right, and we've seen just with optics, even Alan Fung at the WPRI Roger Williams University debate. Um, Fung wearing a purple tie, you know, you wonder his answers or lack thereof on the abortion question. Is he really are they really reaching for female voters that have turned away from Donald Trump and the Republican Party as a whole in in these last months? Um, And and what kind of coalition can Alan Fung actually create um, to put him over the, you know, what is now potentially a 14 point hump? It does seem like he would have to completely suck back, like you say, bring the attention back to him and away from Joe Trillo and be more than just an opposition voice at this point, you know, you would assume. Yeah, I mean, the the tricky part for Fung is that his numbers, his numbers support-wise don't seem to be changing. He seems to be stuck uh, in a pretty consistent level of, of support. Um and you know, he can he can go after Ramundo and hope to bring her negatives up. But he's going to need to find new voters to break the current dynamic. And I don't know, I don't know where you know what that demographic is going to be. It's not not immediately clear. Yeah, it does seem like the nice guy Alan Fung, which I think a lot of that's genuine. I went back and I watched um, after I moved back to Rhode Island and started. Refocusing on on politics here, I, I went back and rewatched Alan Fung's concession speech from 2014. It seems genuinely like there's a man there that really wants to be governor and believes he's best equipped for. It. I'm sure anyone who runs does, but at a, at a very soulful level, it sort of was revealed there. I wonder why we haven't seen any of that from Alan Fung. That sort of emotional 
side that would actually reach out and maybe pull in some undecided voters, you know, who were a little bit more, um, you know, in Massachusetts where you have a Charlie Baker and Elizabeth Warren, the same person voting for both those people. You know, you, you would think that the funk camp would try to work that strategy and humanize them a little bit more, but they just haven't. They just haven't done it. Yeah, the strategy uh, going into the primary, and maybe that's really been hurting him that he had a contentious primary, has really been, you know, was really to keep a, a pretty low profile. I mean, get his name out there, but not to engage as much, uh, presumably to prevent having to take tough primary positions. Um, either positions that were either going to get in trouble with Republican voters and could have seen him lose to Patricia Morgan, uh, or if he took uh, more conservative positions, then he would be uh, faced with even a tougher job um, combating attacks from Raimondo. And the decision looked like it was to really uh, uh, keep uh, Fung away from uh, a lot of media appearances, a lot of uh, unscripted and, and open events um, where he might be faced with uh, a lot of tough questions. But that has kept him a little bit of a distance from voters, too, I think. And it's harder to to really um, forge that connection when you're not uh, as visible and out there and um, and 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 taking taking questions on all topics and 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 taking positions on a wide range of stuff. Absolutely. Um, shifting to District 15, um, that's where the process of who will be Speaker of the House come January sits. Now we'll see if uh, Speaker Mattiello does survive a challenge uh, once again from uh, Stephen Frias. Um, if he does survive that challenge, do you suspect he will be reinstalled as Speaker, or will the wave of General Assembly candidates from the progressive wing, or with more progressive leanings anyway, um, and just the general, you know, the 30, <laughs> 38%, of course, that number again, mm-hmm. disapproval rating that we're seeing, do you feel like there will be a change at the Speaker, the most powerful position in the state? The odds say no. Usually, if the speaker uh, is reelected and comes back, um, he then you know he then comes back as as speaker. Um, it's very difficult to actually mount an in, insurgency um, of of a sitting speaker. So yeah, I think that's where the odds lie if he, if he does come back, but. In addition to just you know whether he can retain the speakership, there are also questions of of what kind of deals might have to be struck if he does come if he does come back, and if he is going to retain uh, the gavel uh, to keep that control because there is um, a level of unrest that we haven't seen since he's since he's been in power, um, and you know. As, as we know, uh, de- deals uh, deals often have to be made, um, uh, and and you know it's 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 anyone's guess what that would look like. Right, the so-called you know behind the scenes operation of the well the sausage making really. I mean, but in Rhode Island, there's I guess an extra layer to that. It just seems like there's a you know, a lot of activity that happens behind closed doors in terms of how power is structured here. You know, there's that's just an anecdotal statement, but you know, it seems yeah, like that's how it goes. I mean, it's 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 everywhere, but here 
I think because the Democratic Party controls so much of the state house, you know, virtually all of it, um, you, you don't have traditional partisan splits um, that uh, that really that determine the dynamics. Uh, so there's a there's a lot more interparty maneuvering, um, and things can get a lot more transactional than uh, a state where you've got a more even split between Democrats and Republicans, and things come down more along party lines. Right? Do you feel like there's now, or we're heading towards a point where um, there will be a, a, a potentially almost two different parties within the Democratic Party, whether it's in Rhode Island or on the national level. But in Rhode Island, we're starting to see there's a media outlet that's starting to describe candidates or elected officials um, as a D-P or D-C. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a, a questionable strategy, but it may be kind of accurate as well. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know about. I think it gets tricky when you're trying to describe uh, a politician's ideology from the outside. It's it it sounds it sounds good. It's it's uh, easier said than done in trying to categorize um, uh, folks, uh, hundreds of lawmakers, and trying to pigeonhole them ideologically uh, outside of where they actually. Uh, you know what party they they actually are are a part of the you know the the ideological divisions in the democratic party have been around uh forever uh, virtually here but i think it's a it's a a symptom of of how ideology how how the parties are sorting more along ideology uh nationally and even though every you know the vast majority of the lawmakers here are democrats that kind of ideological sorting process and the the polarization that we're seeing nationally it kind of it filters down here and i think that's a lot of what's behind the motivation to to really uh split uh democrats into conservatives or progressives or establishment and progressives or however you want to call it. Um, Old guard, you know, that's yeah. the term they love. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is more of an exercise of convenience that's maybe better suited for like a poli sci class, you know, where you can put up a, you know, an axiom and start pinning people in that context. But yeah, it's within Rhode Island. I mean, you have Sam Bell, who is essentially perhaps the most vocal or prominent explicitly progressive candidate um that's that's running now but he was marching with senators white house and reed in the columbus day parade which you know some might say from a progressive standpoint all three of those things are inappropriate you know so it's it's a fine line i don't know what's real might be a lot of phonyism going on right now yeah i can't wait to uh to see uh how sam uh, operates uh up up in the senate it'll be interesting to to uh see that transition yep. um because it's a whole different thing uh being up there and and being uh being an elected official yep. um so that that could be that could be interesting um yeah but again it's it's just not as it's not as it's not always as easy. I mean, yet some some politicians are relatively easy to categorize, but it it always gets trickier once you start sifting down into the actual issues. 
almost no one is you know a hundred percent consistent with you know with how you categorize uh, their ideology. There's always issues that cut different ways um, and surprise people. Yep. Um, your career is you know you're in a, an interesting spot now. You know <laughs> the Providence Journal as it has begun. Uh, well, it's been shrinking for a bit now but it's now we're now seeing some significant changes not only the brojo but everywhere in in print and media in general what do you feel um do you feel a more enhanced responsibility as being one of the few voices that has such a prominent platform uh, in rhode island um are you nervous about the landscape how does it what's your take on this well, the I mean, yes, I'm nervous about where local journalism is going. Uh, I don't think uh, there is a model out there that has been discovered or anyone has proven the concept of that makes local journalism uh, financially viable on the scale that we need it to be or that it has been before. Um, I mean, it's... Digital journalism has proven successful on a national or really international level. But when you look at the numbers, uh, especially in a state like Rhode Island, there's a million people. Digital advertising right now so far uh, doesn't pay to support a large news organization. And I haven't seen many local models that have done that. So until that changes and some organization, whether it's a newspaper or whether it's digital or, or whatever it is, um, figures that out. It's going to be stressful and, uh, just an issue, um, a civic issue, I think, um, uh, in, in most places, as far as me personally, um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I miss all of the folks who have left for whatever reason. Um, it, it really hurts when they go, uh, both personally and professionally, because they did amazing work and it becomes harder to do what we do with fewer people. Um, but, and, and it, it, um, it, yeah, it does put more, we do feel like we have to do more, um, and we do try to do more. I mean, the the good, the positive is that uh, with fewer of us, we we have um, more opportunities each individually to do stuff we want to do, and uh, we can cover more ground. And the tough part is we have to cover more ground. So it's it's you know it's a double edged sword, um, but just hope hoping that uh, the financial and advertising models uh, kind of work themselves out at some point. Right. Or other streams such as, you know, crowdsourcing or which is not very sustainable. I mean, we we see public radio, other types of crowdsourced media outlets. They they survive, but they're not necessarily able to grow to the point where they could compete with Cumulus or something like that. Although Cumulus now is heading in the wrong direction and really shifting away from radio and into podcasts, you know, so it, the whole landscape is shifting. Um, and it will be interesting to see you as a model. The Valley Breeze seems to pump out um, good, if not great content and deliver a physical paper 
on their schedule, as does the Providence Journal in its current context. But you're right, by and large, it's not it's not really there. Motif Magazine, who I write for biweekly, gets out there, but um, you know they're certainly not cashing in uh, checks and buying yachts over at Motif. I can tell you that much. So. Yeah, maybe the format is different. Maybe it's you know it's not a daily print newspaper. I I don't know. Um, I mean, the hard part is is not coming out with some kind of format where you can put news out there. It's to be able to do very time consuming and and very labor intensive work that you know the daily the daily work of journalism is is one thing and it's not it's it's not impossible to do that with less resources than than media have had in the past but to be able to do all of that and then do longer form work and investigative work at the same time that's what really suffers when when you have uh, fewer resources, um, I mean, on the on the national level, things like you know the New York Times just did with uh, the president's uh, family and business history. Um, I mean, is just it 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 boggles the mind the, the resources they were able to put in that, and you wouldn't be able to do things like that without those kind of resources, and. Those are the kind of things that you know we're going to have less and less ability to to do if if we don't figure out a different um, financial model. Yeah, one of the longest investigative pieces ever published in the Times, you know, and that happened now in 2018 in print. So it it, but it's the New York Times, so they have obviously advertisers on the digital side maybe when you're at that scale, like you'd mentioned at the international level. Yeah, you can attract digital advertisers for the impressions but yeah how do you do it i don't know i wish i knew i would definitely <laughs> be able to do that with this podcast if we had that brilliant model somebody will figure it out and then we'll all be in but hope, hope so yeah um you got into journalism i would assume because you had a passion for this stuff were you a news junkie as a kid you know what was your i, I was but I, I started out um uh in yeah, when I when I went to college and was immediately out of college working in uh, film and screenwriting and different creative pursuits, um, and eventually realized that I I probably needed to follow up on on that interest in journalism to make money and make make a living. Oh, really? Um, you can't make that much money as a full time artist. You can, but you need the you need uh, you need the right skills of yep. uh, of networking and and focus uh, and kind of single minded uh, pursuit of that of um, of of those objectives to make it work. That I didn't I didn't really have in a creative sense. Um, so it, it it made more sense for me to. Um, to follow journalism, which I, I, yeah, I'd always had always uh, read a lot and been really interested any, in, in it anyway. That's really interesting that you're, I, I, I sent something about you. The first time I saw you in person was at the phone booth, uh, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, debate, quote unquote, at John DePietro's studio. And yeah, I, I, I sensed an artistic element to you as well. I don't know why, just the way you maneuvered in there. Um, it, it's it's more of a you're you know you definitely have that storytelling 
approach to journalism. And I think that's something that's also, you know, opinion pieces have become so prominent that the, the, the role of the artist um, in journalism is being diminished, I think, or the, the, the amount of artists working in journalism is, it, journalism is being diminished. Like, I would consider Jim Hummel to be a great artist. You know what I mean? He tells stories, he captures it, does the same thing that a painter does, essentially, right? But I would definitely not say that about, you know, I'm not going to name names, but, <laughs> you know, some of the other digital outlets that are in Providence right now that, you know, some of the things they're posting that it's, it's just advertiser driven or opinionated, right? You know, it's just a different brand. Well, within print journalism, and I, I, and I include digital, I mean, anything with, with the, you know, that's, that's words and not audio or, or video. There's always a, a range of, of whether you're, you're, um, how, how much, Effort you're putting into the style you know, versus strictly the information, um, and it's um, it's amazing. I mean, having access to the journal archives every time I go back and and look at stories from the '80s and the '90s, I'm just blown away by the amount of space that they were that they were afforded, um, and and. And it comes through. There, there was a different tone, and there, there was, I think, more uh, freedom and um, opportunity to work uh, with with a more narrative style um, because you you were working longer on pieces and had a huge amount of space. Um, but I still think we we do have um, you know more freedom than some do to to focus on how we're writing things in addition to just what we're writing. Um, and I still do enjoy that. Yeah. And I think readers enjoy that as well. I think that's what people who read, you know, actively anyway, not just glance at the newspaper at Cumberland farms or whatever, but actively read. That's what they're looking for is that I was, I think, you know, I don't know that, but I want that, you know, you want a narrative, um, an opinion's great as well, or a, you know, um, you know, a vanilla impression of something, but you know, storytelling is a specific art. It's like the oldest art form, really. You know, so journalism has the opportunity to keep that alive in a in a civic way and in, a, in an important way. So let's hope it doesn't go away in our lifetimes. I don't think it will. I think it'll just evolve. But yeah, well, know. the better the better your reporting. Usually, the the at least what I found, the more reporting you do, and the better your reporting, the 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 better your writing uh becomes um those stories when they're really good they just tell themselves so that's what we that's what we shoot for yeah last question um do you feel with i've heard from other reporters and television journalists uh that have about Rhode Island specifically that the size of geographically the size but also the access to uh what tim white described as newsmakers access to newsmakers is uh something that allows for specific relationships to happen between um whatever you want to generally classify the media as and generally classify those newsmakers do you experience that as well that you can get in the car and usually get a hold of somebody on the phone or drive down to the state house and get a hold of the person you you really want to get a quote from Yes, it's um, it's much more accessible um, just based on the on, on the size um, and the fact that everyone is so close. Um, but it, it also, 
I think there are just fewer layers uh, in between the media and the people in power than in other states. Um, that's also that's just a function of the size of the government. I think. I mean, it's less so now than it, it had been. Um, traditionally, uh, politicians were even closer to members of the public and the media than they are now. There's more professional communication staff every year. But it's still, because the state is so small, there's only so far they can go to hide. Right. <laughs> um, and and it's also just nice to not spend hours and hours in the car um, driving to get to places you know everything is so close that allows you to cover more news ground uh per mile i guess you can say yeah that's an interesting <laughs> way to look at it for sure um thanks so much patrick anderson providence journal projo.com right in the heart of the election season we'll see any um any upsets last last seconds here you see any upsets in this selection? God, tough to tough to see any right now. It's it's looking it's looking chalk, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, who knows if there's going to be a, a November surprise? Right, maybe Dee Dee Whitman. That may be the one that uh, I mean, it doesn't seem likely. That would be but a surprise. That'd be a shocker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe Joe Trill. We'll see. You know, see if Rhode Islanders like guys getting poked in the eyes or whatever. If that's a gubernatorial qualifier. Yeah. <laughs> As always. Thank you for listening to the Bartholomew Town Podcast. If you enjoy these podcasts, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon.